Well, we've set you up today for a tough decision. Take your Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. While you're turning there, I'll tell you of a group of men that I know who um, kind of embody, they serve as a metaphor for us about one of the troubling aspects of our lives. Used to love to do a lot of backpacking and go up into the high country. We've got several of our men and boys in our church who are part of uh, Boy Scouts, and some of them are doing that very thing right now. And um, in this particular place where I served as pastor for a number of years, they had a history of taking a bunch of their young boys, part of the Royal Ambassador RA program, many of you will know of, and they would take them backpacking. And there was this one boy in particular, uh, when I met him, he was already a man and he was a huge guy. I mean, just, you know, just kind of one of those big strapping guys that uh, you certainly don't want to mess with. But uh, apparently he had been that way as a teenager also. They called him Big J. And uh, they went backpacking and some of the other guys who were behind him on the trail decided that it would be really cool through the course of the day as they were backpacking up into the high country of New Mexico. Uh, the guy immediately behind him, his name was Moy. Moy would reach down, grab a rock, and slip it into Jay's pack while they were walking. Now, over the course of the day, that one rock here and there ended up being a bunch of rocks in his pack. Now, Jay, in those days, he was still a big guy, right? But they noticed that he was walking slower on the trail. And by the end of the day, when they finally stopped, they had been passing rocks up so that Moy could slip them into his pack. And they were laughing at the back of the, you know, this <laughs> we're getting, uh, what does that say about his friends, by the way? But when they finally trudged into where they were going to make camp and they threw their packs off and Jay just kind of sprawled out across the ground, he reached into his pack and he started unloading stuff so that he could get his tent set up. And there he found half a pack's worth of rocks that they had been forcing him to carry all day long. That is a metaphor for life for us these days. People around you have chosen... To treat you in such a way as to hand you rocks. Well, actually, I'm not so sure that they always hand them to you, but a lot of time it works out that way. The bottom line is that as we work our way through lives and people do things that hurt us and do things that offend us and do things that cause us harm, it's like we take a rock and we throw it into our pack and we carry it around with us. Offenses store up. And the effects on us are incredible and debilitating in our emotional and spiritual health. So today what I really want to do is I want to invite you to unpack your baggage. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5 now takes us the next step. Paul has been dealing with a church who is pretty good at Stuffing rocks in each other's packs. They didn't get along well. They didn't handle each other well. They didn't handle church life well. And so Paul writes into the midst of all of that damage being done with them uh, by each other. And he inserts in the middle of this discussion about how to do church correctly an extended discussion. Actually, it's really not so much a discussion as much as it is just a list of characteristics of what love really looks like. Fifteen of them in just a handful of verses. 
And with that, Paul is saying to them, you got to get love right inside the church. Because if you don't get it right inside the church, there's no way you'll get it right outside of the church. And the lack of love inside the church is killing your witness outside of the church. So Paul says, get it right. And so he begins to write this long discussion. A number of verses here about the importance of love. And we finally now get to verse 5. Actually, I'm going to begin reading in verse 4. We're going to just take the last word of verse 5. Or at least in my translation, it's a single word. But let me get you into the flow of it. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. And then finally, for verse 5, he says, it is not resentful. Now, we have several different words that we use for that. Your text uh, depends on what you have. I use the English Standard Version, and it says love is not resentful. Probably the New International Version gets it best when it says love keeps no record of wrongs. It's an interesting word Paul uses here. I'm going to come back to the discussion of the word itself in just a moment. But before I do that, let me make sure that we stop long enough to figure out just how big of a problem this is that we're working with here. Unforgiveness is really rampant in our world. Look back over some of the major money-producing movies of the last 20, 25 years. As you look backwards like that and look at how we as a society have said, this captures me enough that I'm willing to pay money to go see it in a movie theater or even to rent it at home or to own it at home. How many of those big producing movies have something to do with revenge? Somebody did something against me and so now I have to make them pay. It's part of us. Not a single person in this room today is exempt from people hurting you. And our society seems to say, when they hurt you, it's okay to hold that against them. When they come against you, and maybe it's something as simple as just an offense and your feelings are hurt. Or maybe it's something as drastic as serious bodily injury or financial ruin that's come to you. Our society seems to say, if they've done that to you, then you're justified in not forgiving them. We've even dressed it up. We talk about a sense of justice for those who have done wrong. I'm not arguing against that. Much of the Old Testament, especially in the prophets and the minor prophets, comes up at the point of God demanding justice as we deal with one another. But I'm afraid that we've taken a good biblical, godly concept and we've twisted it to serve our selfish, sinful end. I don't want you to think that uh, I'm just up here throwing rocks at other people. I don't want you to think that I've figured out how to do all of this and so I'm trying to come as some authority who has accomplished this whole thing of forgiveness. Many of you know the story of our second son. That's Colin. He's been here a couple of times and helped us with some D-Now stuff, and you've met him and also his wife. But um, some of you know the story. 
of Colin, who six weeks into his freshman year in high school, was brutally assaulted, attacked from behind. We got a phone call, Teresa and I did that day, that said, uh, we've put your son in an ambulance and he's headed to the hospital. We think he might be okay, but we're not sure. We made it to the hospital just about the same time that the ambulance got there. And over a period of hours, we listened to doctors as they came in after running reports. And we looked at the face of our son who had been brutally beaten at school. And the doctor told us, your son was beaten to the edge of death. I would love to tell you that the first thought that came to my mind was, I forgive this kid who did that. That wasn't, Not only was that not my first thought, that was not a thought that even was entertained for a long period of time. In the process of following up on that assault, the district attorney's office, once they were given the report from the school police department, said whether you choose to press charges or not, we will. This is such a serious offense that we as a district attorney's office are going to prosecute this individual for the attack on your son. Teresa and I sat in meetings with attorneys. We found ourselves sitting in a courtroom one day where all of this was coming to a head. And we had worked through some plea bargains to try to help the young man out. But i got to be honest with you, I wasn't interested in helping him. I'm like most people, and I wanted a pound of flesh for our troubles. How are you when people harm you? Or people harm those who are important to you or the things of life that are important to you. Interestingly to me, through the whole process of dealing with the stuff tied to our son and hiding that and couching that for me in terms of there's got to be justice here, there needs to be consequences for the behavior to teach this kid and others like him not to behave like that. I said all of the right things, but deep inside of my heart, I was thinking we will make this boy pay for what he's done. Isn't that pretty much the human condition? Aren't we all like that, really? It's just a matter of leveling out Based on how serious the offense was, how will we respond to that? But somewhere tucked deep inside of us is that part that says we want revenge for this. And then some smart aleck church person will throw up a verse like, you know, revenge is mine, saith the Lord. Yeah, 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 whatever. Through it all. Of all people, through it all, it was our son, the one who had been attacked who kept saying to me, Dad, let it go. Let it go. I've forgiven him for that. As a dad, I wanted to say, you can't do that. That's not the human way. How do you do when people hurt you? I got a a feeling sneaking suspicion that this passage and what we're dealing with today 
may very well be one of the most liberating truths of the entire Christian life as it relates to how we deal with other people. Because it's such a problem for us. If I ask you to take 30 minutes and get alone by yourself in a corner somewhere with a sheet of paper and a pen and make a list of the most damaging things that people have done to you in your life, I wonder if one page would be enough for most of us. Life's full of hurt. Life's full of mean people. How could Paul write these words? Love keeps no record of wrongs. This time, by the way, for me to give you another one of those Road Trammel family mottos. Now, I've shared some with you already. I'm grateful that you allow me to continue to be your pastor the more this kind of stuff you find out about me. But uh, our teenagers, some of them, a bunch of the girls were going to be spending the night at somebody's house the other night. And uh, we were standing at the back during vacation Bible school. By the way, nice job, Bible school folks. Y'all did a great, great job. So proud of you. Appreciate what you did. Um, and so these, we were having a discussion back there and one of our teenage girls was talking about them getting together and my youth minister, no, my retired youth minister mind said, this is trouble, wrong, 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 danger, danger, right? Bunch of teenage girls get together, new youth minister in town, somebody's getting pranked. And so, because I'm all for protecting Aaron, I said, if you prank me, You need to remember what my motto is. And I said, if you squirt me with a water gun, she finished it for me. You know how that finishes out? If you squirt me with a water gun, I'm going to run over you with my truck. (laughs) Sound like the forgiving thing to do to me, right? (laughs) The fact that she could complete it for me told me my mission with her was done. Here's the second Road Trammel family motto for you. Forgive and forget, but always remember. Chances are good that's your family motto too. We're good when we put our religious clothing on to say forgive and forget. But the human part of us always wants to tack on to the end of it, but always remember. The word that Paul uses here is a word that captures this middle section here, what the King James Version says, love thinks no evil. It's a word that's actually an accounting term. I was going to use an abacus here to show you this morning, but we couldn't round one of those up because they're so ancient uh, in life. But uh, the idea is that you keep this visible record That may not be visible as in you're keeping books, although it is an accounting term that Paul uses here, but he throws in the concept of evil. So it's not just keeping a record of what's going on. It's the idea of keeping a specific record about the things that people do to you that you consider to be evil. And the list goes on and on and on. That's those rocks that we throw into our packs. And so somebody, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's somebody in your family, a parent maybe, and they throw one of those daggers at you that come out of their mouth and it cuts straight to the heart and you go, "Mm mm-hmm, I'll remember that and you keep a list. You know that 90% of the marriage counseling that I do for couples who are struggling 
they struggle with keeping a list. Well, that's not really the best way to say it. They're great at keeping lists. What they struggle with is letting the list get destroyed and remembering it no more. And so, a spouse, a family member says something that cuts you, and so you slide the abacus, you pick up a rock, you put it in your own pack. Maybe you're at work. And that smart aleck boss of yours gives a promotion to somebody that you know was yours. And you slide the abacus, you pick up a rock, and you throw it into your pack. Maybe it's a church person. And you walk up on a conversation, and you just know that you're the subject of that conversation because when you walk up, they both stop, and they just kind of turn, and all of a sudden, it's all smiles. And you pick up a rock and you throw it into your pack and you slide the abacus and you keep record of the wrong done to you. Maybe it's an ex-spouse. Maybe it's some anonymous person on the road. And it all comes together to emphasize for us just how serious people fail to take you and your feelings. In this case, Paul says, the accounting that's happening here is the offenses that are levied against you. And it's one thing after another. And before you know it, you're walking through life with a bag that is so packed full of hurt and offenses and unforgiveness that you can't even keep track of all the new offenses that come, but you try. Hauling all of that unforgiveness around is taking its toll on us. It's taking a toll on us as people, as individuals, as churches, as the cause of Christ in this world today. Unforgiveness is killing us, and it's killing our cause. So what happens is we start recognizing all of this stuff and it starts making us angry. And so anger is one of those things that we pull out and it becomes part of our everyday life because these people keep doing these things to me. It just makes me mad. And so people get marked by anger. One of the reasons of wading in now to the whole shooting stuff that's happening in our schools and in malls and movie theaters across America today. And there's all kinds of discussion about what's causing that and it's to gun control or whatever it is. Let me tell you the reason that we're doing that. We're raising multiple generations of angry children. And part of that is because they're growing up in homes that are marked by parents who don't know how to forgive. And so they just carry their own baggage and they transfer that baggage to their kids. By the way, that's Old Testament and the sins of the fathers visited on the children to the third and the fourth generation. And so we just perpetuate this problem. And so people hurt us and we load our packs up and we become angry people raising angry children. You do that enough and you do that long enough, that anger turns into bitterness. And so we find people who if they smiled, they would feel like they were denying who they are. And their face would fall off. Spirits full of bitterness 
that bitterness over a period of time turns into just outright distrust of people, which leads to withdrawal. And so we have people living lives by themselves, angry at the world, distrustful of everybody they meet. And it all starts with unforgiveness. Hear me again. Our churches are full of these people. And these people are killing the cause of Christ in this world. Now, that may be you. Now, this is about the time as I was starting the process of getting ready for this message. I was, Monday, was working through some of this and processing back through some of the stuff through the years. And, you know, the hard, I've said this multiple times. It's hard for you to sit through these sermons on Sundays. I have to live with them all week long. So, you know, I, I understand your pain. And as I was working through this, I started thinking about how we tend to deflect and defend when we start hearing these kind of sermons and this kind of text in Scripture. I, I know I need to forgive, but if you just knew what those people had done to me, you wouldn't ask me to do that, preacher. If, if you just knew the pain that I have gone through, you wouldn't be throwing that at me today. You don't understand. It takes me to a discussion I have with my other son, my oldest one. That boy's gone through some struggles over the last few years. He said one day he... <laughs> It was just kind of whining to God. Now, i got to tell you, we didn't do whining at our house, okay? You want to whine? I'll give you something to cry about. We just move right through the whining, right to crying, okay? And, and he said he was kind of whining to God. And at some point in that, he's, you know, God, this is just not fair. I'm having to pay this price and I didn't do anything. And he said suddenly it's like God broke through all of the whining and said this. You're right, Brandon. This is much worse than dying on a cross for somebody else's sins. That, that kind of gets me to part of what I think we need to get a hold of here. In, in case you're one of those here who's hurt, and, and the hurt that you have is so deep that you don't really know exactly what to do with it or how to, how to work through it, let me leave you, well, not leave you, I want to start here in the fixed process. Uh, go to the cross, okay? First of all, recognize your own sin. The problem, you see, with unforgiving people is that they don't understand what it means to be forgiven. If we understand Scripture in the first place, by the way, that's part of that little deal that we saw. People, Jesus was pointing out to Simon Peter and to his disciples, which stretches all the way to us, that this idea of forgiveness is great when we are the consumers of it, but we don't like to be the distributors of it. So start off there. Start off on the consumer level of this. Now, I'm going to get kind of direct with you here on a couple of things. If you happen to be one of these who's hurt, I understand. I get it. Hurt people hurt people. But for your health, for your spiritual well-being, go here with me. Jesus Christ forgives sin. You agree with that? Wow, that's like very underwhelming, that response was. 
Do you really believe that Jesus Christ forgives sin? Yes, we do. If you don't believe that, you cannot be saved, okay? You have to believe that not only does he forgive sin, he forgives your sin, right? Right. So when it comes to that struggle that you have with letting stuff go for those people who have hurt you, don't forget what you have been the recipient of. Your sin put Jesus on the cross. Yours. The greatest picture of love and this forgiving love that keep no record of wrongs that we're talking about is what God gives to us through Jesus Christ. When we acknowledge our sin, we find his forgiveness, run to his forgiveness. And we all love that. That's the Baptist way. That's the evangelical way. By all means, take advantage of forgiveness. But there's a problem with that for us if we take that and then fail to distribute that. Because you see, the deal is the very same sin that you have that put Jesus on a cross, these other people have too. I'll say it a different way. This is the in-your-face part of the sermon. If Jesus forgives those people for their sins, including the ones where they hurt you, If he forgives them, who do you think you are not to forgive them? You something special that you have a certain corner on the market that even God doesn't hold himself to? Who do you think you are withholding forgiveness from somebody that God has already forgiven and it cost him his son? See, that doesn't play well in churches. But it's the way it is. Love keeps no record. Love offers. Remember what I said? These are all active verbs here. Love refuses to hoard forgiveness. Love refuses to keep it to oneself. Love forces us to freely offer forgiveness to people. There's no... But, you know, but preacher, if you knew this, or but if you only understood this, there's no but attached to that. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Corey Tin Boom. Now, you may or may not know who she is. Uh, she was a lady in her family, uh, Dutch, if I remember correctly, who were part of World War II and the Nazi extermination project of the Jews. She and her family hid Jews out. They've got a great book if you haven't heard of it. It's a long time ago now, The Hiding Place. Some of you have heard of it. Her sister, she watched in one of those concentration camps. It was actually an extermination camp where people were killed systematically by the Nazis. She lost her family there, watched her sister go off to die. A number of years, not really very many years, 1947 to be exact, after that whole thing with Germany and the war was over, she began to talk to people about God's love and how he offers forgiveness. And so she found herself going from the Netherlands back to Germany to do a meeting where she was talking about God's love. And so some of those German people there who had been 
collaborators with what the Nazis were doing were in the audience and she kept saying, doesn't matter what you've done, God offers forgiveness for you. By the way, it's a good time for me to stop, bring it to the current day and say, doesn't matter what you've done, God offers forgiveness for you. That's good news. And so some of us are walking through life with so much guilt. You hear a sermon like this and you think more about the wrong you've done to other people than what's been done to you. God offers forgiveness to you. So she was finished with her talk about God's forgiveness. And she said she noticed this one guy who started making his way up to the front to where she was. And he was dressed in a suit and he looked nice and all of that. And she said it dawned on her like that. This was one of the guards at the place, Robinsbrook, where my sister was killed and where I was a prisoner. And he walked up to her and he forced the issue. He said, that's a great talk that you've given us about God's forgiveness. And I want you to know that I was one of those prison guards at that place where you were. And I have discovered and received forgiveness from God for what I've done And he stuck out his hand and he said, and I ask for your forgiveness too. Corey Ten Boom, the great saint that she was, said, everything about those days flashed before my eyes. And the horror and the punishment at the hands of this guard. And she said, I had to decide would I forgive this guy just like God did? See, that's the decision you have to make too. Lots of people are going to hurt you. Hurt people hurt people. And you've got a lot of those in your life, I'm sure. And you have the scars to show that they're in your life, I'm sure. Let me give you four real quick suggestions on how you get there. How do we get forgiveness right? Here's the first one. Remove the emotional component. Now, I know that this is going to sound a little strange, but here's the truth of the matter. You don't have to live at the level of your emotions. Your emotions, as part of you as they are, designed by God and part of the way you're put together by God, your emotions can sell you down the river of life if you're not careful. You do not have to live at the level of your emotions. So as much as you can, when it comes to the offense that has come to you, you remove the emotion of it, and that brings me to the second one, and you decide to forgive them. And then you do it. Make the choice to overcome your emotions and do what needs to be done. Sounds easy. It's anything but easy, but it certainly does sound easy. Here's another part of it for you. When you find yourself nursing a grudge... Stop it. (laughs) Just stop. But you see, that's hard for us. Here's a good quote from a psychologist I read not too long ago. Listen to what he says. This gets us back to the reality of our times. There's a certain satisfaction that comes from keeping and carefully nursing a grudge throughout the years. Did you catch that? In other words... There's a certain level of enjoyment that we get when somebody hurts us and we hold a grudge against them. He goes on to say, the feeling of accomplishment when the grudge turns from a little cyst to a fully integrated tumor is without compare. Here's what that means. 
practically speaking, we like to hold on to a grudge. You hurt me, and so I'm going to hurt you. And we love it when that starts small, but over a period of time becomes a cancer in our lives. It doesn't make sense, but it's so obvious in the way we deal with people. One guy said it well. That approach... That nursing a grudge and the bitterness and that withdrawal and all that stuff we talked about before, that's like getting stung to death by a single bee sting. We just let it linger. Sorry, Mike. We just let it linger. And it holds on to us and it becomes this huge thing in our lives and we nurse off of it. Sometimes we even build our whole lives around it. If you'd have known my dad, I, I hate my dad. In counseling, I like to say to people like that, then why is he on your mind every second of every day? And the answer is because you've let him be there. Which gives me the fourth one. First and always, fall into the arms of the great forgiver. You cannot do this on your own. This is bigger than you are. And it is incredibly liberating when you get to it. Come on up, Brian. Some of us, some of us, have gone into this this day. Let's just put it to today. And we're carrying with us a load of garbage. We've been packing our own rocks into our own packs. Every time somebody says something that gets under our skin, every time somebody offends us, every time somebody hurts us. A few weeks ago, I was at a conference, a preaching conference. And the lady who was doing music at one of those sang this song. I asked Brian when I got back, I said, I'd like for you to have this ready by the time we get ready for this particular sermon. This is our invitation time. I'm going to just ask you to go ahead and stand up, if you will, heads bowed and eyes closed. As we come to this time, I want you to listen to the words of this song because it might just capture who you are. And while you're doing that, let me give you something else to remember in this. I think it was uh, D.L. Moody who said something like this. It's a loose quote. The world has yet to see what God can do in, by, and with a man who is totally dedicated to him. I will do my best to be that man, he said. Here's my deal. I wonder... If we as a church, if you as a church member here, if we could get this love stuff right, what difference would it make in this town? I've been here three years. I hope you know me well enough to know that I love you. And I love you enough to shoot straight. And here's one of the things we need to hear as a church. In southeast Texas, it may be the culturally acceptable thing to do to hold a grudge. But that's not acceptable in God's kingdom. And if you're holding on to something today that somebody else did to you and you won't forgive them, that's sin. And you need to get that right. And until you do, it's weighing you down.